during this month of July, we have been in a sermon series called Rediscovering Our Freedoms. And this sermon series has been guided by the very famous Norman Rockwell paintings entitled Four Freedoms, and that were inspired by a speech by Franklin D. Roosevelt expressing his vision for a post-World War II world. We have included some more contemporary versions of the Four Freedoms inspired by Rockwell. These paintings were commissioned by an activist artist organization called Four, F-O-R, Freedoms. There were some 82 paintings uh, that were commissioned for this work, and these 82 paintings reflect more of our diverse American culture. And so we think they are important to pair with each other. We have discovered that three of these four freedoms are derived from our founding documents, freedom of speech and freedom of religion in the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, freedom from want in the Declaration of Independence that all people have unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, though we have to confess that recent events in our country, the raging COVID-19 virus and the economic downturn have certainly uncovered tremendous injustices that still rage in our country, especially for our siblings of color, the marginalized, and the oppressed. Today, we take up the fourth vision that Roosevelt put forth from the four freedoms. Freedom from fear. Now, I think you probably already know that there is no real link to our founding documents for this freedom. We don't hear it articulated in those documents. However, it makes sense that in developing his vision for a post-World War II world, that FDR would choose this freedom. You may not remember that Roosevelt's first um, inaugural address offered this freedom to the American people, but you likely remember his words. The country was in the midst of a deep economic depression, and with sabers rattling in the beginning of Germany with the election of Adolf Hitler as chancellor. Roosevelt speaks these famous and transforming words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I was going to try and imitate him, but you don't want me to do that. Now, what you probably don't recall are the words that follow that famous statement in which he said, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes, needs efforts to convert retreat into advance. Of course, in the sermon series, we have discovered that all of these freedoms are actually something we can see through the lens of our faith. Our Hebrew and our New Testament scriptures offer us all of these freedoms articulated in various stories and teachings across time and space. I mean, think of it. 
The freedom of speech is found in the story of Abraham confronting God and trying to save Sodom and sort of bargaining with God, which means that we all get to be free in our speech with God. And the freedom of religion can be found in the story of Daniel, in which even in Babylon, he chose to exercise his freedom to be in relationship with God as he understood God. And then there is the freedom from want. And we would be missing the boat if we didn't realize that throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and into the New Testament, God provides for us. And the best story I know of that is the story of God providing meat and manna in the wilderness as the Hebrew people made their way to the promised land. Also, we learn in Scripture that the promises of God that are revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth reveal that God has desires for our freedom. And in fact, we are given the freedom to choose, to choose God or not. And God, in God's majesty, will still love us. And we are given freedom through the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is with us to fill us with courage and hope and strength and possibilities. And that then also allows us a life of freedom. Still, even with these godly promises and godly stories, we still have fears. And these fears right now threaten to overtake us, and they are real. But no more real than they were in the ancient stories of the people who were our predecessors in faith. You know, the Israelites wandered for 40 years in an effort to free themselves from the slavery that they were in in Egypt. For 40 years they wandered, and then all of a sudden, they are on the brink of finding their way into this promised land that the scriptures called Canaan. And there they are, on the precipice of a new beginning. And yet, it is far from a new beginning. If you read on in the book of Numbers, past this story of their on the precipice of entering the promised land, you will discover that it was not an easy journey to find a land of peace and promise. It took a lot of years. And still today, we might note that the, the uh, country of Israel still struggles with its freedoms. Now, God tells Moses at this moment, get some spies together and send them there into Canaan to find out everything about this new land. Now, if you are reading this carefully and listening carefully, you know what that means. A, they're trying to find out if it's going to be a good place for them, but more importantly, B, can we overtake them? Can we overtake this land and make it ours? Well, I want to set that little bit of the story aside because I think there's a better story in there for us today. And so um, Moses gathers up a representative leader from the 12 tribes and sends him into Cana and ask them to find out, find out what this land is like. Is it beautiful? Is it big? Find out what the people are like. Are they strong or are they weak? Find out what their cities are like. Are they walled or unwalled? 
find out how the land produces. And so they did. They went and they found out and they looked at the people and they looked at the land and they came back with rich gifts of fruits, grapes and pomegranates and figs. And, and they came back and they reported to Moses, this is a beautiful land, but it is filled with giants. These people, they are giants. And Caleb and Joshua, who were among the spies, said, no, wait. Caleb says, wait, we need to go now. We need to go now into this new promised land. And the people say, no, no, we can't because these people are giants. And to them, we are like grasshoppers. We are like grasshoppers. Well, you know how the story concludes. They do make their way into the new land, and it's, it's not an easy journey, and it's not any easier than it was when they were wandering in the wilderness. Of course, the, the journey of faith and life has never been particularly easy if we look at the life of Jesus, who was born in a backwater town and came from a, a family and became a rabbi and tried to show people what God's love really looked like and how he lived, um, resulted in his execution by the state and by the religious authorities of his day. And by the time the first letter of Peter was written, which they think was at the end of the first century, after the resurrection, uh, we find that the people of Israel, especially those in and around Rome, where it is believed that Peter's letter was written, are being horribly oppressed. They are, are being persecuted, and they are being harassed, and they are being blocked out of the social constructs of their communities. It was a difficult time. And so when we compare our circumstances with their lives, uh, we discover that the journey of life and faith is never extremely easy. And so across time and space, the people of God, filled with fear, exclaimed, to ourselves we seem like grasshoppers. And so we seem to these things that oppress us. You and I both know that in this world we have a lot to fear right now. You know, we had heard for years that there might come a pandemic and there had been efforts to prepare for it, but we didn't expect anything like this. A virus that was so hard to defeat. And now we enter into this debate about our personal freedoms versing our personal safety. Given the rise in recent infections and deaths from the virus in the United States, it is very unlikely that many of us will get through this virus without a direct connection to someone who is infected or dies or even ourselves. And the economic devastation is brutal. You and I both know that businesses, especially businesses that are owned locally and by individuals, are closing temporarily, and some of them for good. People have lost their fortunes. And people are losing their jobs still, and the ability to care for their families. And we know that because we see the cars lined up. 
We know that because we see the cars lined up to get food. And, and we know, don't we, that even though we don't want to admit it, our siblings of color, the impoverished, the immigrant, the refugee, and all those marginalized by our society are suffering the most. And our children, what about our children? You know, um, they are taking the brunt of this. They are having to learn how to do school at home by themselves. They are not able to see their friends. They are lonely and struggling, and they are afraid. Our teenage daughter this week expressed her fear about the virus and what will happen? What will happen if you get sick? There's not a lot we can say to that except we believe that it will all be okay. In the good or the bad, it will all be okay. Or as the great Saint Teresa of, of uh, uh, Julian of Norwich said, all shall be well, and all shall be well, every manner of thing shall be well. If you are anxious, if you are full of fear, and I don't know who isn't right now, welcome. Because we are all in this together. I doubt seriously whether anybody is immune from fear in this climate. And in the face of everything that is happening, it is no wonder to me that we too might join our ancient sisters and brothers of the faith and say, we are like grasshoppers in the face of these giants. And so it seems to them as well. But as much as this is one story, there's another story we need to tell. It turns out that the people of Israel finally settled in the land of Canaan. And from that place in the western edge of the Mediterranean emerged some of the most profound theological understanding of God that has ever been put forth. A God of grace and mercy, a God of all creation, a singular, solitary God who loves, who loves profoundly the creation that has been created. And in a backwater village in Galilee, a child was born who would become for us the real presence of God in the world, who would show us what God's presence looks like in human form. He would show us how to be unafraid of those who could kill our body but not kill the soul. He would show us that fear is overcome by hope and hate is overcome by love and life is a death is overcome by life. And with his promise to send the Holy Spirit to be with us always, he offered us a freedom that transcends all things. Through his life and death and resurrection, we would be set free from a fear that has held us bound to death forever. And he, in his life, would remind us that we are far more than grasshoppers. His follower, 
who was renamed Peter, and upon whom Jesus built the church, would write a decade later a missive, a vision of the Christian life. He would root that letter in the saving action through the life and death and resurrection and glorification of Jesus Christ. That author would remind us of this hope that is generated within our community and calls us to live lives of integrity and to offer hope and good works to the world. And perhaps most important in this letter, he speaks to us across time and space about freedom, our freedom, saying you are free from the law, but that doesn't mean you are free to do wrong. In fact, this writer would say we are called to a higher freedom. We are called to live as those who are free to do only God's will at all times. This is a new story. It is a different story. It is a different narrative than the one that we hear in the death narrative and the death knoll of our culture. You hear that we are set free, but not to do whatever we want, but to use our freedom for good. And this means that we can join with God in co-creating in this world. We can join with God in making a better world than how we found it. It won't be easy. It's not easy. Nothing about it is easy. But isn't there something about doing something hard that brings you life? You know, we're going to have to um, we're going to have to develop some attentiveness to the world around us, and that that means we're going to have to be disciplined about it. You know, every now and then I'm driving down the road and I see the ducks on the pond near my neighborhood. And I have this overwhelming moment of joy. And then it goes away. And I forget about it. And I get angry again and fearful again and all that. We've got to have a discipline that reminds us of the beauty of this creation that God has placed us in the midst of. And it's going to require meditation. And it's going to require prayer. And it's going to require talking with people about the goodness of this world. And we're going to have to have an attentiveness to looking square in the face at pain. Because none of us wants to look at pain. We don't want to look at our pain. We don't want to look at other people's pain. We don't want to look at the pain in the world. We want to turn from it. But in order to be compassionate people, we're going to have to sit with the pain. And then there's this. This week, a clergy colleague of mine sent me a video of David Brooks preaching at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. You know David Brooks. He's a, a writer and commentator. He is preaching at the Episcopal Cathedral, the National Cathedral of the United Church of Christ, on July 5th of this year. Which is interesting because David Brooks is a writer and a commentator, but he's not a rabbi, he's not a priest, and he is Jewish. And this will be the second time that he has preached there. And he titles his sermon, Beauty in the storm. And I have to say that I commend it to you, and I hope you will go and find it on YouTube and watch the whole thing. It's only about 15 minutes. 
He related to his listeners the difficulties that I have mentioned above in my sermon this morning and more and much more eloquently than I could ever do. He describes our current circumstances as having begun as an earthquake and now in tsunami after tsunami after tsunami. He speaks of faith as being a storm, uh, that we have tendency to characterize our faith as tranquil and gentle and loving, but that faith is about a storm, about being in a storm that drives you back to the beauty that you once found and you cannot live without. He reminds us that beauty comes from storms. The Declaration of Independence in the Constitution of the United States came out of the storm of the Revolution. And out of the storm of the Civil War, we heard Lincoln's second inaugural in which he said, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds. And then he says, more than any of that, out of the storm of life, our ancestors of faith were always reminded, do not fear. Do not fear. They are some of the most common words of Scripture. And almost always, they are followed with, For God is with you. For God is steadfast. For God will be ever with you. And sometimes, even in the voice of God, we hear, I will be with you always. And there's two responses we can take to fear. We can take the fight or the flight response, or he calls us, uh, David Brooks does, to choose a different narrative. Not the narrative of death and destruction, but the narrative of life. The narrative of being compelled by beauty and to look around and to see it and to be part of it, to be part of the beauty, to discover the beauty in our world. And so I commend to you this narrative and invite you to choose it with the freedom God has given you to choose this truth that is freedom from fear. And so may we live fully and love extravagantly and be the people of freedom that God has called us to be. Amen.